Chicago Queer and Now is a joint venture between Chicago Reader and Windy City Times. I'm Amy Matheny. Welcome to Chicago Queer and Now, the podcast love child of Chicago Reader and Windy City Times. Chicago Queer and Now, I am going to be joined by writers, editors, and behind-the-scenes staffers of both media outlets for conversations about Chicago's diverse LGBTQ community. On today, Andrew Davis and Matt Simonet from Windy City Times are kicking off our inaugural show. We're talking a little bit about the anniversary of the pandemic, as well as this new collaborative effort by Windy City Times and Chicago Reader. And then Adam Rhodes and Karen Hawkins join me for a deep dive conversation on the recent Reader cover story, A Racial Reckoning in Boys Town. And that's an important one. You're going to want to stay tuned for that. But first, let's go to Kirk Williamson and the news. I'm Kirk Williamson, and here is the news brought to you by Windy City Times. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the Equality Act on February 26th, federal legislation that would expressly prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity using existing civil rights laws. The Equality Act would provide clear federal civil rights protections to all LGBT people in the country, said Christy Valerie, legal director at the Williams Institute. Dr. Rachel Levine testified on February 25th before the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions about her experience and qualifications to be the next U.S. Assistant Secretary of Health. If moved forward by the committee and confirmed by the U.S. Senate, Dr. Levine will become the first out-trans appointee confirmed by the U.S. Senate and the highest-ranking out-trans person ever to serve in the federal government. The Ann Sather Restaurant at 909 West Belmont has been fined $2,000 for violating the state's indoor dining ban last year, reports ABC7Chicago.com. Chicago Alderman Tom Tunney owns the restaurant, which was cited December 4th. After being called out on social media, the 44th Ward Alderman admitted to an error of judgment for allowing regular customers to dine in. On February 25th, Tunney released a statement about the fine saying, We have settled the matter and look forward to further lessening the restrictions on restaurants, bars, and other businesses as the COVID positivity rate continues to fall and more individuals are vaccinated. And the 78th Annual Golden Globes Awards was broadcast on February 28th in a quasi-virtual event hosted by Tina Fey in New York and Amy Poehler in Beverly Hills. Actors Dan Levy and Jodie Foster were among members of the LGBT community who were honored at the ceremony. Levy and Jim Parsons were nominated in the Best Supporting Actor in a Series, Miniseries, or Motion Picture Made for Television category for Schitt's Creek and Hollywood, respectively. And Schitt's Creek won for the Best Television Comedy or Musical Series. In his acceptance speech, Levy said that he and his father, Eugene Levy, with whom he co-created the series, aimed to express a message with love and diversity, and he hoped other producers would follow suit. And today's Chicago Queer and Now trivia question is, what is the oldest currently operating gay bar in Chicago? You think you know the answer? 
Stay tuned for the end of the podcast to find out. I am so happy to be joined in this inaugural podcast of Chicago Queer and Now by Windy Sea Times Executive Editor Andrew Davis and Managing Editor Matt Simonette. Um, hey guys, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I am okie dokie. How about you, Matt? I'm doing fine, doing great. Good. Well, you know, Chicago Queer and Now, this podcast is a collaboration of both of our papers, and um, we are launching that collab with the first ever Windy City Times pullout in the Chicago Reader, which, uh, you know, hit the streets on March 4th and um, is obviously able to be downloaded or read online at chicagoreader.com and when, uh, whenever you'd like. Um, but it's been such a year for us to get to this point. And before we talk about the excitement of having this queer show that's focusing on Chicago and um, that the fact that we're all working together again, because mm-hmm. I have a history of working with both of you all. Um, I just want to ask, like, you know, we're coming up on this anniversary of the pandemic and sheltering in place here in Chicago. Um, I remember where I was a year ago uh, about this time and, and just when the world changed and just wanted to see, you know, how has this year been for you all? Um, the good, the bad and the ugly, like, how's it been? You know, I mean, everything everything from, you know, how have you handled it? And also have you picked up some fun new, hobbies, um, <laughs> or, or, you know, just your life, your, your, your life in this past year, a little reflection. Andrew, you want to go first? Yeah, want me to, I'll, okay. I'll tackle it. No problem. No problem. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it's been the same as always, cause I've been working from home since 2008. Mm-hmm. So in a way I was sort of practicing for this year. This <laughs> yes. year. <laughs> yes. Me, me as well. Me as well. You know, I've been, I've been a stay at home worker for a long time. You know, except I wasn't, you know, walking everywhere with a mask on and things like that. So, of course, we all had adjustments we had to make. Um, Being African-American, it was also a very interesting year with the racial awakening Mm. of some people. And, you know, George Floyd, of course, and everything that happened in the wake of his death. So that's also been very interesting to see and experience. I've had people apologize to me. A couple friends of mine actually had people give them money. <laughs> like, mm. wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's just been an odd year in that respect. But, I mean, with the Windy City Times, of course, that... Yeah, let our listeners know. I mean, that's been different. The paper um, celebrated a big anniversary, but also celebrated the stopping of the of the print edition. Can you talk a little bit about that, Andrew? Yeah, our last print issue was September 30th, and it was our 35th anniversary issue as well. So extremely bittersweet. I I didn't know what was going to happen with Windy City Times after that. I know we were supposed to go online, but I've seen too many publications just implode altogether. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, Windy City Times has been, I guess, sort of like a queer CNN.com. Yes. <laughs> yes. All, all the latest news and interviews and things like that. So Windy City Times has found a life after mm-hmm. print, I'm happy mm-hmm. to say. 
And, and Matt, how has it been for you um, personally and also as someone who is really editing and um, making sure those important stories in our community get told? Um, I think, I, I think um, you know, a lot of what a lot of what Andrew uh, and you said applies to me as well. Having, you know, having worked from home for years and years, I'm a um, I'm an introvert by nature. And so being at home is something that doesn't uh, doesn't bother me uh, all that much. You know, I look forward, look forward to going outside without a mask again, whenever that whenever uh, that happens, look forward to getting a vaccine. But, um, you know, I think just in terms of uh, being at home, that hasn't been an issue. Uh, certainly uh, getting, uh, just get it every, getting everything together personally, going through all the existential stuff that everybody goes through in a pandemic, apparently, you know, that's been something. But I think as I've continued to uh, report uh, over these, you know, over the last year, I've been really impressed with uh, how many of uh, the movers and shakers in our community have been able to keep going in all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, so many of our organizations were very quick to pivot to pivot to work from home models or uh, take their public events uh, online. You know, and um, I think that I, I think that. Chicago's LGBTQ community is handling it as well as anyone can, as the rest of the city is right now, and trying to make sure that things get done as as we go through this tremendous crisis. Well, and I think it's interesting. It's a unique conversation because I have wondered if the LGBTQ community of a certain age, mm-hmm. <laughs> can I say? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, luckily, this is all voice and not and not um, seeing our faces, <laughs> but we're all of a certain age that we remember um, another pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, we we yeah. we remember um, AIDS and how it impacted and rocked our world. Um, at least I'm on the apex. Um, you know, I turned fifty this year, and so uh, I celebrate the same kind of anniversary. Mm-hmm that the Chicago reader does as well. Um, free and freaky since 1971 and the Chicago reader, but, um, but you know, it is interesting. I wonder if we have more of a P you know, PTSD response to the pandemic. Are we more um, anxious and more neurotic about the, the, you know, COVID than perhaps our, our, our straight allies because we've been through it before at the beginning, or do you think we're more resilient? Like we understand mm-hmm. that we have to, you know, we kind of have to take care of ourselves and put some self care mm-hmm. along the road. I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective. I, I think I would, I would actually lean more towards the latter. Uh, Amy, I think, um, I think there are a lot of people of a certain age, as you say, who, you know, for them, this is not the first time that, you know, it seems like the government for a long time was indifferent to a pandemic that was, you know, that was happening. It didn't come as a, it didn't come as a surprise to them when it uh, when it occurred. And so I think that there were plenty of people who were able to take their experience and really, you know, put it into a place of strength to get through this last year. So I'm sure there were people who might have approached it from P- uh, with a kind of a sense of PTSD. But I think the, you know, I think that they approached it with resilience is probably a, the more profound and more widespread response. Do you agree, Andrew? 
I would agree with that, actually. For the most part, yeah, I've seen, I don't know, I've seen people who have, during the first pandemic, they went to hundreds of memorials Mm -hmm. and funerals. And so when this came along, I think they actually were better equipped psychologically and emotionally to deal with it especially since the government this time also (laughs) responded (laughs) a bit better than previously. So, yeah, I I would agree with Matt on that for sure. And how have we brought the joy? How has the queer community and Chicago's queer community tried to bring the joy and the hope and the the colors of our community, um, you know, just to keep us carrying on? I feel like that's the resiliency that the queer community knows and understands. Where have you experienced that this year? I've experienced it. No, seriously, on a smaller scale, I've experienced it with some of my friends even and the support that they've been trying to give each other Mm -hmm. because mental health is such a huge issue that no one's talking about. Very few people Mm -hmm. are talking about. (laughs) And yeah, people have been supporting other people and saying, yes, you can do this. And I've witnessed a lot of my friends who are LGBTQ plus who've been helping other people, not only in their community, but also in the non LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. demographic. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think it's been a very, a very deep thing that normally um, perhaps our community has has worn masks and worn personas and worn our drag right out there to mm-hmm. that that was our that was our superpower right and I don't even mean that from the the straightforward idea of drag although that's a manifestation of this but I just mean you know um, we have a we have a way of of bringing light and our own families of choice and our mm-hmm. own friends of choice and our own support groups kind of in packs with us because we've had to. And I, I do feel like you're right, Andrew, that we've been able to sometimes in more one-on-one situations um, mm-hmm. really hold space with people and help people in that way. You know, our city it is just an amazing, it's still an amazing place to be a, you know, a queer person. Um, and many of the organizations and institutions and individuals have carried on with their great work mm-hmm. for the community. Um, and one of the things that we've been able to do is collaborate, lift some boats. Um, that's the way to help each other. And this Windy City Times um, pull out insert uh, in the March issue, March 4th issue of Chicago Reader um, is on the streets and downloadable. And in that, tell us a little bit about what is the coverage we're going to see in some of these stories that are included in that issue and their relevance right now. Well, I'll talk about one of the stories and then Matt can talk about what he wrote about. But in addition to talking with activist Tanya Unzueta, and there's also a piece on HIV representation on television throughout the years. I was fortunate enough to talk with Sean Strube, a longtime AIDS survivor, the founder of Paws Magazine. And believe it or not, this openly gay, like I said, long-term AIDS survivor 
is mayor of Milford, Pennsylvania, which went heavily Trump in 2016. <laughs> and he won in 2017. And there's a documentary about it called My Friend the Mayor that's just fascinating. And the talk with him was fascinating. We talked about Larry Kramer. We talked mm. about, yeah, the day that Sean discovered or was actually diagnosed. We covered a lot of ground. And it was a very interesting talk. That's fascinating. And Matt, you? Um, I wrote a piece which is just about kind of the uh, changing landscape that we probably will be seeing uh, with regard to prep uh, in the uh, in the months ahead. Uh, and um, what we're seeing there is uh, prep for the last several years has come in the prep pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which can stave, uh, which has proven to be effective in staving off um, HIV infection. Um, many people have been using uh, the oral medication Truvada uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, the transmission of HIV. And what has happened is uh, Truvada's uh, uh, patent expired late last year. And starting in April, uh, there is going to be uh, generic uh, configurations of Truvada that are uh, widely available. And that means the price is going to go down big time. And that's going to be a that's going to be a real big, uh, real big thing, because uh, Truvada has been very, very expensive. You're looking at, you know, you're looking at about $20,000 a year uh, cost for that. Most of the time, you know, insurance covers that. people per kind of perceive that as being free because um, because uh, the Gilead, the uh, pharmaceutical company there uh, covers the copay uh, for uh, for people on it. Um, and so Gilead, because that patent is expiring, they want to see uh people move over to another medication that they conveniently are <laughs> are uh, offering called Descovy, uh, which uh, supposedly mitigates some of the side effects. And so it's going to be an interesting moment because there's going to be mo- talk about whether people should change over to Descovy. Descovy has been around for about two, two years now, and some people have switched, but it's uh, prep might be more widely available uh, for people because of this, uh, because of having a generic option. So uh, it's an interesting time for it. And it's interesting, too, because I would imagine with the disparity, it creates a disparity on who has access to Mm -hmm. Travada and what parts of the community we're protecting. I mean, it does tie back to you know, who has access to protection and and healthcare, which is, you know, a big part of our, um, our, our our other interview in the show where we're going to be talking about, you know, some racial disparity within Mm -hmm. the LGBTQ community, particularly looking at the microcosm of Boys Town, but it's obviously, that's just a a little town aspect, a little Uh community aspect that we can um, pull out and see as happening, especially with the COVID um, pandemic, you know, happening in all communities. Um, So really interesting stuff. I'm really so thrilled that this is going to be be the beginning of more collaborative work um, with Windy City Times and Chicago Reader. And uh, and just to say that the Windy City Times website is just chocked full of uh, LGBTQ news 
every day, all the time. Um, so check that out, um, frequently and consistently. Um, and I just want to thank you, Matt and Andrew for your work and coming on the show. You will be on many more shows coming up with us. Uh, so thank you so much. The, the March, 2020 Windy Sea times pullout in the reader can be downloaded at chicagoreader.com and for Chicago's queer news every day of the year, visit windycitytimes.com. Rosalind showed me continental. It got way down in my meal. And it's Chicago Queer and Now, and for today's deep dive, we discuss the reader cover story, A Racial Reckoning for Boys Town, with our social justice reporting fellow, Adam Rhodes, and Chicago reader, publisher, and editor, Karen Hawkins. Welcome to the launch of our show, you two. Thank you so much. So good to be here. That's Oh, it's great to be here. It's good to have you both here. Adam, I, I, I know that this story hit the streets, hit the, hit the interwebs, and um, definitely was impactful um, doing what we do really well, what the editorial team does really well at The Reader, which is taking the time to really um, do a deep dive uh, on the stories that matter in the city of Chicago. What was the initial impetus for this story, a racial reckoning for Boys Town? Was it George Floyd in the summer of protests and the activism that, that um, followed, or had that come to you prior? Um, so I actually started reporting um, and working on this story uh, a lot sooner than those uprisings. I started reporting on it um, September 2019, and really the only thing that motivated this story um, was it was the first time I walked around Boys Town with my partner, Randy. And just the first thing I noticed was that pretty much everyone we had encountered thus far in our walk around the neighborhood, which at that point was around 15 minutes, we hadn't seen a single person of color. Um, and I, at that time, was a very new transplant to the city. Um, and it was particularly shocking to me, it was because it was the queer neighborhood. I thought it was going to be this intersectional, really cool, um, like queer haven. Um, and what I uh, then encountered was very different. So I thought that ended up, ended up itself was a story. And, and, and Karen, tell me about when this story came to you and how did it get legs for um, something for the reader? Absolutely. And I, I just want to throw in, Adam, you moved here from New York City. Yes. So, yep. right, to come to Chicago from New York City, knowing, oh, it's the queer enclave. It's, you know, having this expectation in your mind of what that's going to look like in Absolutely. the third largest city in the country and to get here and be like, oh, I guess not. Um, so, you know, um, truly. We, are so fortunate to have Adam as our social justice, our first ever social justice fellow supported by a grant from the Field Foundation. Thank you, Field Foundation. Sure. And, right, and, you know, one of our first conversations uh, was about the stories that Adam wanted to make sure that they did during this year. The fellowship is a year. We are hoping to hold on to Adam, of course, beyond that, fingers crossed. Fingers um, crossed. Right, but, but the conversation was, all right, what do we definitely want to get done this first year. And this story was on that list. And of course, I signed on to it. I started reporting on the queer community in Chicago 20 years ago, working for Windy City Times and reflecting back on that and realizing how little has changed since then made it really a story that I wanted to make sure that the reader had. 
Well, and I love the full circle moment that we're having Karen Hawkins with you on the inaugural show of Chicago Queer Now because you were on the Windy City Radio with me and 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 at Windy City Times with me and 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 Andrew Davis who was just on um, our show earlier. Where do you even begin to approach a topic this huge, even when you have a lot of time? Still, how do you how do you make an inroad into to covering this story? I think that's uh, such a good question because, again, it did sometimes feel very overwhelming. It felt like sometimes I was, um, like, digging through, like, hundreds of pages of, um, like, horrible Facebook posts or, like, things like that. Um, but I really first started reporting the story kind of just um, with the uh, more recent instances of anti-Black racism in the neighborhood. Um, those were really my jumping in points to... Um, the community and to people who would speak with particularity about the community. Can you um, tell us what then. those both were just really briefly? So if yeah, our totally. listeners are unfamiliar. Yeah, totally. So um, in May, 2019, a Confederate flag vest uh, was found at the local like vintage and like costume drag store beatniks. Um, and it was found by a black man. He was just like going through the racks as you know, many of us have. Um, trying to find something for a party. And he um, said that a friend called him over and, like, just showed this crimson vest with um, the two, like, blue X's on the white stripes. Um, And he said that when he went to point out the obvious racist overtones to the product, um, he said he was turned to the manager, um... And then the manager got very, very heated, starting yelling at him, and then ended up actually calling the police on the person reporting the best, which, I mean, given everything we know about how uh, racist and violent police are, not only to Black people nationwide, but here in Chicago, I think it was just a really eye-opening moment for a lot of people in in Boys Town. Um, But unfortunately, it was also something that not a lot of people paid attention to. Um, And it was just another um, instance of anti-Black racism. And I think a week prior was when um, the owner of Progress Bar um, had sent out an email saying that he did not want rap or like hip-hop music played at the bar anymore. Um, And that DJs who played that music would not be allowed back. Um, And so obviously the black and brown patrons of Progress Bar felt particularly singled out by that. Um, I mean, obviously they're going to play like the top 40. They're going to play Ariana Grande and Lady Gaga and the things that like the white gays are um, like streaming and like kicking over, but why can't they also play the music um, that will attract other clientele, not just like the people who only want to go to the top 40 bars. Like why is rap music not allowed at a gay bar? And it's interesting that this conversation, like those are two incidences that, you know, you, you kind of anchored, um, uh, the conversation starting there, because as you said, there were probably so many or decades, as you said, decades mm-hmm. in the making of things you could have selected. You've tried to keep it as current as you could from something mm-hmm. that happened in 2019. And Karen, I think I just look at the Chicago reader and we were coming under new ownership um, in late 2018 and really making our own, just, you know, re calibrating, if you will, um, the intentionality of who we were as a paper and 
who is the Chicago that we are, who we are writing for and who is reading us and who we want reading um, our paper. So can you talk just a little bit about uh, the work that we were trying to do, um, you know, a little before this past summer as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that we one of the first things that we did when we came in as a leadership team, um, you know, there, there are a lot of lesbians in leadership in the reader right now. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of folks of color. And I feel like one of the first things we did was to ensure that people who are telling stories about communities are of those communities. So it's not writers parachuting into a community and othering everyone and bringing their own lens, like, look at what these people do, right? It was really important to us that people get to talk about their own communities in their own way with an authenticity and a beauty and a dignity that you don't always get when folks parachute in. And so having Adam, I just added you, Adam, sorry. Having Adam be able to tell this story (laughs) about Boys Town in this way as someone coming into Chicago, I think it's it's important not only that Adam is of the community, but that um, is from outside of Chicago and isn't just like marinating in the racism of Boys Town. Like, I feel like those of us who are from here are just like, well, of course, Boys sounds like that. What? Like okay. fresh eyes, like fresh eyes. Adam Absolutely. came in with kind of clean glasses in a way, optimistic and hopeful and you know, showing up very open to this experience of being in our, our city. Right. Yeah, totally. I think I was, um, I don't know, especially kind of like living in New York, um, as New York has its own problems with racial equity. I won't like say it's like a perfect city, but to a certain degree there, especially, um, like the neighborhood in the village, it's, um, a, very diverse uh, collective like on um i always used to love to go to this one bar rock bar um and that's where it was the most diverse bar in the world and it was right at the end of christopher street it was a 15 minute walk from stonewall and it was just like literally this like queer corridor where you could see like black and brown people trans people women men non-binary people and when i came to boys town expecting that it was the exact opposite I almost felt like I was in the financial district, quite frankly. A lot of the things that you also write about when you're talking with the North Halstead Business Alliance um, and how they um, have or have not tried to address accusations of racial disparity. um, And obviously in this past year, impacted by um, conversations around race and conversation around the pandemic and also the way those are all knitted together. Those two conversations are so knitted together in our city right now. Can you talk a little bit about that, Adam? And, um, and I guess, Karen, either of you of where you see that, because this is not the only story that we're talking about around this. I will say in terms of the conversation around North Housing Business Alliance, which is actually where I saw some of the more egregious and overt accusations in the article, a lot of the people I've spoken to have said these are longstanding issues within the alliance. Um, And I think even their efforts to address the allegations against them have been, um, I don't know if the efforts have been ill-conceived, but like their actual... um, like work in those efforts has uh, left a lot to be desired. I would say Um, I talked to an individual who led a diversity training for them. um, And it, and I listened to an anonymous recording of that training and it was, it was shocking. It was shocking the way that 
these, I think there's two people of color on the North Boston Business Alliance board, and there's only one woman. Out and of so how many? This is, I think 11. I believe it's 11. So like roughly a dozen people, there's only one woman and two people of color, and the rest are white male business owners in the neighborhood. Um, so obviously these people are driven by profits, by bringing the most people they can in the door. Um, but what they were talking about during in the recording, and it's not just like one or two members of the alliance, it was several people talking about their struggles in addressing their discomfort in playing rap music in being accepting or inclusive to um, gender diverse people or to just not like mistreating their patrons and customers. Their first I mean, this is a quote someone literally said um, at one point, just having to make someone comfortable have to make me uncomfortable. And I think that's such a big issue in the community is that people are really seeing, they don't see the need to be accepting and to be inclusive and to be intersectional as like a moral imperative. They see it as like a conscious choice they can or cannot make as opposed to a necessity. And I think it's particularly troubling for Boys Town that the leaders of Boys Town are these people that have these opinions that are very comfortable uh, mispronouncing names of their black and brown employees or underplaying black and brown employees or repeatedly removing hip-hop and rap music from jukeboxes or um, yelling at or, like, saying the N-word and, like, things like... And these are all allegations that have been leveled against these community leaders. Um, and I just feel the need to point out that I also tried to talk to members, to people who these accusations were leveled against and no one, no one wanted to address them. No one wanted to talk to me. I give people ample time. Um, I mean, like Alan agreed to talk to me and then stopped answering my emails. When were you requesting the, um, responses, Adam? Do you remember? Uh, was it prior to the summer or was it after the summer? No, it was after the summer. It was after actually relatively, it was very close to when it published. I think I, I try to do like a, I try to reach out to folks like over the course of my reporting, if I haven't heard from them. Um, but I reached out to the North House and Business Alliance several times. I reached out to individual members and I reached out, to, reached out and spoke with over email, like Alan himself. And he then stopped answering my emails, I guess, once he saw the receipts that I had. I don't really know what happened there. And Karen, is there, um, once you get to that point as the editor of a paper, is there any action that you feel like you have to take at that point or that you want to take or the story prints because there's a lack of response? I guess a lot of people who don't maybe understand that lens of you as an editor, um, what is that role that you play? I mean, once it's clear that we've reported everything out that we have, you know, as Adam said, once we have the receipts and we can back up the claims that we're making and we've offered the person ample opportunity to respond, then we make clear that we've offered them the opportunity to respond and they didn't take us up on it. And I feel like a lot of times what people don't understand in these stories is that silence is almost never the answer. Mm. It is all better to say something. And do you think that people think they, they're they're going to be misrepresented or they don't have a shot or they there's no way they can. I mean, I, that's so, that's so critical. What you just said, Karen, yeah. I feel like that that's, it's so I, critical. I don't know yeah, how to get in their minds of like what that means silence, but 
I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I think of it in terms of our personal lives, right? When you're confronted with something, you either, let, you know, you get defensive or if you're an evolved person, you apologize and you talk through it or you just shut down. And I think people do shut down and they don't want to talk about it. And they do have fear about being misrepresented or misquoted or taken out of context or all of these things. People have a million reasons why they don't respond to reporters. But um, I think that's almost never the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um and, and one thing I wanted to add about this story, just to give context for, for any of our straight listeners who aren't as familiar with the queer community, is that I think people think about the queer community and think like, well, you're a marginalized people. Surely you're not going to be biased against other people. Like, I feel like there there's a segment of my friends who are always shocked when they hear like, well, what do you mean gay men are sexist? What do you mean queer people are racist? What do you mean they're classist? That's right. Like, I feel oh, like there's this honey. notion, right? Like, if you are marginalized that you somehow don't have all of the implicit bias about all of these other things that we all- You don't get marginalized have. over and over and over again. Like, it's kind of like one-stop shopping, right? Like, you're only oh marginalized for this, you know? But right. mm-hmm. yes, I mean, I guess if we need to say it out loud, there is racism in the queer community. There is sexism in the queer community. There is, you know- um, So much transphobia Transphobia. Mm-hmm. There is, I mean, you know, back in the day, I mean, I, I hate to say like back in the day, but I mean, I do think it's important to give historical context you know, it was a sin to be almost bisexual, you know, 15 years ago. The fact that we're well, talking about now gay later thing. That's right. I mean, you know, I think that those were huge stories that I used to do on the radio on lesbian gay radio, you know, of the few people and who were like the two bi men I could even get to come on and say they were bi. I mean, it was like not something people wanted to talk about. So, you know, obviously our community is progressing. We are pushing the needle forward. We are, um, you know, we can say demanding or providing opportunity. You can make it gentle or aggressive. You know, we continue the conversation. That's kind of what I hope uh, Chicago Queer Now can do by merging what Windy City Times does and what the Chicago Reader does and where we, the, the point in which we meet is that we get to keep the conversations going because the silence, as you said, Karen, so poignantly, you know, is never the right answer. And it doesn't mean that you have to speak just to fill space just a really horrible character trait of myself. Um, (laughs) So, so, you know, but I do think there is that moment to just, you know, pause and listen and then form some words, even if they're just questions or even if they're um, open-ended ways to saying, how can I navigate this? You know, not that you have to do the work for me, but I, I, I want to navigate this um, and to know more. Um, And so I guess I would say, and, you know, we talked about um, earlier in the show about, you know, Boys Town being kind of a microcosm. And yes, we can compare and contrast ourselves with New York, but I always hate to compare and contrast ourselves with New York personally. It's maybe a personal thing of mine, but because, um, you know, the second city and all. But I just think if we look at our own town, obviously what's happened is as Boys Town has changed and evolved, um, you know, Uh, Queer people, people of color have also found safe spaces outside of Boys Town. That seems to be, um, you know, uh, some of the answer or some of the reflections that I see in your article, Adam. Um, And, um, you know, is are both things happening at once? We're going to try to continue to make change in an area like Boys Town with a story like this. And we're going to go and try to 
build from the ground up new communities in our city elsewhere? Yeah, I would definitely say that because I think there are um, a lot of uh, black and brown queer people in the city that want Boys Town to be the intersectional, inclusive, diverse space that um, I think we all hold in our mind's eyes like this queer haven. Um, But then there are other people who rightly so have experienced, I think, a certain degree of marginalization within Boys Town that they have, um, that they see it as unsafe for them, um, oftentimes because of those personal experiences. I mean, I guess for the people who have created space outside of Boys Town, it is very intentional. Um, It is because, I mean, the people that I spoke with said because they have often felt unsafe in Boys and that they got either explicit or implicitly told that Boys Town is not safe for them and that they are not welcome in Boys Town. So I do think it's happening. It is happening side by side. I think a lot of people are seeking space outside of Boys Town and maybe building their own space outside of Boys Town. But then there are also people within Boys Town, and these might also be the same people, who are then working to dismantle the racism, the classism, the sexism, the transphobia, and all of that, and to make Boys Town what it should be. Well, and I think there are many business owners who very much are leading that charge and very much in in Boys Town and want, you know, want it to be a more of a reflection of, 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 you know, of our city um, and of our queer community. Um, What can we do? What, what are the action steps we can take right now that either of you see in, in with this conversation? We have information now, you know, if we look at it in the cold light of day, what can we do? Yeah, I think right now, um, you know, leaders in Boystown have made promises to uh, be more inclusive, to be more diverse, to hopefully stop micro and macro aggressing the black and brown people that visit the neighborhood. Um, And I think as it stands right now, it is incumbent upon us as queer people to hold those leaders to those standards. I mean, the leader said they were changing the name of Boys Town, but are those banners still up? When I go through Boys Town, those Boys Town banners are still up. I still see the posters that say support Boys Town businesses. So I think we still need to be pushing the leaders in Boys Town to make good on the agreements that they have made. And Karen? Yeah, and I, I would add to that, you know, just just take a step back to and just to say that the efforts to make other places in the city more welcoming and safe for queer people has been going on for a long time. Like the movements to make space on the South side and the West side safe for queer people that's been going on for a long time. And I think that work obviously is continuing. And I think the answer is exactly what Adam said. And also to make the city safer for all of us in general. Like I I think Boys Town can be this haven. It can be this enclave. It still is really important, obviously, to the community. But I think not everybody wants Boys Town. And it would be great to have options, right? Like it would be great. Like I don't want to go to Boys Town. I want to go to the South Side and do whatever. So I think the the answer is to do both, as you're saying, to do both of these things in parallel and to keep pushing Boys Town to make itself safer and to push other neighborhoods to also be safer. Well, I think your story is a a big step in doing both of those things, Adam. And thank you for the time and consistency and, um, 
willingness to uh, make a start with a conversation, you know, at this moment and this time and who knew um, prophetically that it would be so impactful. Um, and so good on you for the timing of that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I just thank you both. Um, I look forward to having you both on the show to continue to have these deep conversations about our community um, and the intersection of both of our, our, our papers and media outlets. Um, to read more stories like this, uh, visit chicagoreader.com. Um, you can also download the article. We'll have it linked in our show notes for the full article um, that Adam beautifully wrote. And, and, and now um, I'm going to say that the readers and the Windy City staffers are going to share some other things that you need to know. These might be of a little lighter fare, um, but it is time now for Queer Picks. Hey, my name is Taryn. My queer pick is Deaf Queer TikTok. There are a ton of funny and informative creators on the app who sit at this really cool intersection of the deaf and queer communities. So much so that I've been inspired to start learning more about deaf culture and studying ASL myself. Some of my favorites include at Deaf That, at Glass Menagerie, and at Signing Wolf. That's S-I-G-N-I-N-N-G Wolf. But head to TikTok to find more. Hey, it's Salem from The Reader, and my queer pick is the Harvey Firestein episode of the TV show Murder, She Wrote. Uh, Murder, She Wrote ran for an amazing 12th season, so don't be worried if you missed this one when it originally aired in 92. This is season 9, episode 5. It's called The Dead File, and Harvey plays a newspaper cartoonist accused of murder. Uh, his character claims that he has two ex-wives. Hmm. But this episode of Murder, She Wrote is infused with so much gay subtext that it belongs in the archives of the Gerber Heart. Uh, Murder, She Wrote is streamable on the Peacock Network, so I recommend you go watch it. Hey, it's Carrie Reed. My queer pick is Out Darn Spot, the newest streaming theater offering from Helena Handbag Productions. It's 1969, and Lady Macbeth is starring in a happy homemaker TV show and losing her mind after helping her husband commit murder. Tyler Anthony Smith wrote and stars as Lady M in this edgy hybrid between dark absurdism and cap. Tickets are $17, it's running through March 21st, and you can order your ticks at handbagproductions.org. It's time for Best of Chicago from Chicago Reader. Pick up or download your copy of the March 18th issue to see over 250 winners reflecting the best in our city. For Best of Chicago, visit chicagoreader.com. Winners announced March 18th. Thank you to Chicago Reader, Windy City Times, Andrew Davis, Matt Simonette, Karen Hawkins, Adam Rhodes, our producer Dennis, music assist from Salem, and our newsman Kirk Williamson, who's here with that queer trivia answer. And that question once again, what is the oldest currently operating gay bar in Chicago? Jeffrey Pub, located on Chicago's south side, has been open for business since the mid-1960s. Great job. Thanks, Kirk. And I want to thank Chicago music maker KC Ortiz, whose music you've heard throughout the show. Check out KC on Spotify or wherever you stream music. 
That's it for our show. Find us on chicagoreader.com, windycitytimes.com, Apple, Google Play, or anywhere you download podcasts. I'm Amy Matheny. Thanks for listening to Chicago Queer and Now.